I think with the pandemic, the war, these Sunday attacks, there is this belief that Sri Lanka is also an insecure country. And I think that can be contested. I think there are different experiences to it. Um, definitely, there are a lot of questions around what's happening. But at the same time, I want to also convey this thought that Sri Lanka is also... Um, it's a country that has many positives, but unfortunately, there are a lot of negatives as well. This was Bhavani Fonseca talking about her home country, Sri Lanka, the island nation just off the southeastern coast of India. Hello and welcome to the second edition of Meet My Country, hosted by Asia Society Switzerland. In this podcast, you will learn about a new country in each edition, this time from two very outspoken women from Sri Lanka, Bhavani Fonseca and Ambika Sakonanathan. I'm your host, Denis Jaubli. In this episode, Bhavani and Ambika will talk about their views on Sri Lanka and its big brother India, the post-war situation, Sri Lanka's government and its domestic and foreign politics. And to end with, they will share with us their favorite food from Sri Lanka. Let me briefly introduce our two speakers to you. Bhavani Fonseca is a senior researcher and attorney at law with the Center for Policy Alternatives in Sri Lanka. Her work revolves around assisting victims and affected populations by the war across Sri Lanka, legal and policy reforms, and public interest litigation. Bhavani is also an Asia 21 Fellow of the Asia Society. Ambika Sakunanathan is currently an Open Society Fellow. The Open Society Foundation supports work on justice, democratic governance and human rights. From 2015 to 2020, she was a commissioner of the Human Rights Commission of Sri Lanka. Prior to that, she served as a legal consultant to the UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights in Sri Lanka. Let's keep in mind that Sri Lanka is a diverse nation and there are multiple voices and opinions out there, especially on some of the post-war and political aspects we'll touch upon. As Bawani Fonseca says about herself, she comes from a particular background. I think it's about the perspective, my own experiences. And so I will come from a very particular point of view. That doesn't mean that is going to be shared by everyone. But I think hopefully this conversation will enlighten is that there's so many multifaceted dimensions and... There's no one narrative. And Ambika Sakunanathan adds about herself. I think it's a fact that as a Tamil woman in Sri Lanka, the ethnic conflict has impacted my life in many ways, from the time I was a child to until today. So I think those real-life experiences do impact how I view things mm -hmm. and how I work on human rights. I think that's important to know. For our listeners out there in Switzerland, this podcast might be especially interesting. Sri Lanka is the Asian country, making up the largest share of foreign-born population in Switzerland, with a vast majority having a Tamil background. Now, before we get started, let me highlight some points about Sri Lanka's important background information. First, 
Sri Lanka has a long tradition of democracy and a high human development index, which is actually disproportionate to its level of economic development as its population is well educated. The island nation is rich in natural resources and has a great economic potential. Its diverse economy is based on agriculture, mining, fishing, manufacturing and tourism. Second, Sri Lanka has been scarred by a long civil war arising out of ethnic tensions between the majority Sinhalese and the Tamil minority in the north and east. The war ended only in 2009 after more than 25 years of violence. Both Sinhalese and Tamil had been residing on the island for centuries before the arrival of European powers. Under British authority, ethnic problems continued to complicate as new elite groups were created and Tamil laborers from southern India migrated to Sri Lanka to work on plantations. Since its independence from Britain in 1948, governments have faced popular pressure from the Sinhalese majority not to make concessions to the Tamil minority and Tamils have agitated for more autonomy. Since 1972, the armed uprising of the Tamil Tigers who fought for a Tamil state in the northeast of Sri Lanka, has been met with government military force leading to civil war. And finally, I think it's good to know that the current Sinhalese president, Kotabaya Rajapaksa, led the military defeat of the Tamil Tigers in 2009. He then served as the secretary to the Ministry of Defense and Urban Development under the administration of his brother, the former president and now prime minister, Mahinda Rajapaksa. Godabaya Rajapaksa won the presidential elections in November 2019 after the Easter Sunday attacks in 2019. During these attacks, three churches and hotels were targeted in a series of coordinated Islamist terrorist suicide bombings. Now, before we dive into more details on national politics, let's begin with some brief inputs about Sri Lanka and where it stands today, brought to you by Nicolo Singer, Executive Director of the Asia Society Switzerland. Bhavani, I want to start with you. If you look at Sri Lanka's strengths and what concerns you most about the country, what are the things that you would highlight? Um, I would say the first one is that Sri Lanka is stunningly beautiful. And, and those who visited would know that from its beaches to the hillside. So it's just one of those really remarkable countries. It's also a country that has such diversity in terms of the people, the religion, but I'm personally a foodie, so also just want to make the uh, flag the fact that the food in Sri Lanka is just unbelievable. N nothing else really compares, so there's some real strengths here. But in terms of also concerns, you know, we've had cycles of violence and just A lot of questions, I think we'll go into it during the conversation in terms of questions into the future. And, and that's something that's of serious concern. I'll just keep it at that because I think we'll get into it later. Let me just throw the next question at you. Ambika, if I give you only a few words, how would you judge the current state of Sri Lanka, especially regarding uh, the societal and political Uh, state? How is the country doing? And, and, and of course, we're in a pandemic, so I, I would imagine that that would factor in as well. Well, the, where society is concerned, I think um, we, I would say diverse, talented, but also now enduring a lot of hardship. 
politics is majoritarian, ethno-nationalistic, and quite despairing. I think that's how I would describe it. So we wanted to, you know, in, in, in these standard questions, ask the question about how the country compares to its neighbors. For Sri Lanka, I think there's one neighbor, first and foremost, which is India, that matters. So if you had to highlight a few of the commonalities, but also differences between Sri Lanka and India, where would you start? Well, I think we do have a lot of commonalities. And particularly now, I think there are a lot of parallels in that, um, you know, we have majoritarian, authoritarian governments. We have uh, ethno-national politics. We have minorities, you know, whose rights are being violated. Uh, And we also have oppositions that are not particularly strong. So I think in that sense, both our countries have a lot of commonalities. Also, where the pandemic is concerned, I think for us, India is a lesson because we are afraid that we might soon go down that trajectory. Where the differences are concerned, I think uh, one is, of course, federalism, in that uh, it's a federal country and that, that is something that we have been struggling with. And also the diversity. Yes, we are diverse, but I think in terms of in comparison to India and the fact that it's managed to hold or somehow through a lot of uh, contentious conflict managed to hold that diversity together. I think that is also the difference. And let me maybe ask you this. This is not one of the standard questions, but uh, I'm curious nonetheless. So Sri Lanka is a small country that has a, a, a very big country as a neighbor. Um, and I'm here in Switzerland. Of course, we are also a small country and we have uh, a neighboring country to the north, Germany, that's significantly larger. But culturally, there are a lot of similarities. So I'm curious about like, what's the how does the relationship between the two countries look like? Is it is it I know it's close. Is it is it amicable? Is there a lot of like rivalry or sometimes also resentment in it? How is it? How would you characterize the relationship? I think it is all of those things because it is like even in the region, there is that big brother syndrome, whereas everyone looks to India, but there's also conflict and resentment. And also in terms of Sri Lanka's ethnic conflict, India has historically played quite a pivotal role, which has also created sometimes resentment. And right now also because of the India Uh, China equation and the fact that Sri Lanka is getting closer to China, that's also causing a lot of tension. So it's a complicated relationship. Thank you so much. So uh, with that, let's sort of jump into the conversation. And again, you know, we've we've touched upon the conflict uh, a couple of times already. It's been 11 years now since the end of the civil war. And I want to talk about sort of all the the issues that remain and the issues that are still lingering, of, of which I know there are many. But let me start by asking something different, which is what are some, um, and Pavani, maybe you can start by answering this, what are some of the positive developments that have shaped the country since the end of the civil war in 2009? So what's actually gotten better since that time? And then afterwards, we can talk about all the things that haven't yet gotten better. So I think one needs to recognize the fact that there are no active hostilities going on. And for many of us who lived through the war, who knew only about the war and, you know, we used to hear bombs going off while we were in school. The fact that that's not happening is a a big thing. But that said, there's a lot of stuff in terms, worrying trends in terms of authoritarian governance, militarization, the erosion of the rule of law, all of that is happening. So, one needs to kind of keep that in mind that, you know, not everything is great at the moment, but 
for those of us living in Sri Lanka, I think that there is one particular dimension of the active hostilities that's not there. Um, and, and the fact that nearly uh, 12 years after the end of the war, there are certain things that have opened up. So that's a positive. But I think we'll go into this discussion with post these Sunday attacks, the pandemic, there's severe restrictions and repression that's in place. So, you know, the positives, I think, are very limited when you look at the negatives and just the gloomy scenario in, in, in overall. So I just mm. kind of want to leave it there. Yeah. Thank you very much. Ambika, you, you mentioned already before briefly that, you know, of course, the the, the, the civil war and the conflict have, have shaped you personally. And I was wondering, Mbavani says, of course, it's a positive that there are no open hostilities, there are no bombs going off right now. But to which extent is, is the war and the legacy of the war still present in, in, in people's daily lives? So is it something that still matters to to average people on, on a daily basis, the, the, the legacy of it and, and remembering it? Or is it slowly starting to recede and maybe being replaced also by, by other concerns? I think it depends because for the conflict affected, particularly in the North and the East, it continues to impact their life every day. I think to the other populations, although it does impact them, they don't always realize it. So, for instance, we have the Prevention of Terrorism Act, which also does impact them and is in a way uh, has been shaped by the legacy of the conflict, but they're not aware of it. The other factor is militarization. Mm -hmm. Initially, militarization was only in the conflict-affected areas. After the end of the war, militarization uh, was all over Sri Lanka. And it's only now that people are beginning to realize that. So I think the conflict does have an impact on the lives of many, but tangible impact, perhaps only directly on those conflict-affected. For others, broadly in terms of, you know, democracy and civic space, I would say, yes, it does. Pavani, you touched upon this again also a little bit before. I'm, I'm asking this because the United Nations Human Rights Council, their Sri Lanka just reported on human rights issues. So if we, and, and I think you, you both kind of made this point that, you know, there's not uh, war and peace or, or not a black and white issue, but maybe it's more of a spectrum where Sri Lanka has been moving more towards sort of the peace side, but is not yet there. So where would you, on, on, in, on this balance between, between real peace and open conflict, where is Sri Lanka right now? And do you feel it's, it's still moving into the, in the right direction? Nico, I think one needs to recognize that Sri Lanka is in a post-war context. So mm. unfortunately, 12, nearly 12 years after the end of the war, those root causes are still sustained. And what we have seen in the last few years is the fact that the fear that many faced during the war is very real now. And, and the um, one thing I think we need to be very, very aware is the, the new target that we are seeing since um, in the last few years is the Muslim community in Sri Lanka. They, they are facing multiple attacks. So I wouldn't say we it, there's peace in Sri Lanka. Mm. I think the degrees of what we saw from during the war to now is different. But there is this very real challenge of an authoritarian government that it will do anything in terms of 
human rights, the rule of law to stay in control. And the response we've seen with the pandemic is a very clear indicator that there is really uh, even the democratic processes, institutions that are in place um, are facing severe attack. And I speak as a lawyer here, we've been in the Supreme Court challenging some of these practices. It, it's one of the most worrying times in Sri Lanka in, in the post-war city. So very much, I think there are many problems. It's just different dimensions and recognizing the fear that is being created, the levels of hate that is coming up since, especially since the Easter Sunday attacks in 2019 are very real. And those things will we really need to confront. Let's maybe just continue right there, because again, the, the Easter Sunday attacks from 2019 have come up a couple of times already. And they seem to me from a very far away point of view, have been some kind of, of turning point in, in terms of domestic politics, Ambika, would you agree with that? And sort of maybe can you talk a bit about sort of uh, the attacks and the, the political effects that they've had? Um, I would say, I mean, once again, yes and no. Uh, in some ways, the, uh, it was a turning point because I think it enabled the current regime to come to power because they were they pointed to that as a failure in security and failure of the, the government to take action. But on another sense, if you look at the anti-Muslim violence that took place, that was something that has also been there historically in Sri Lanka and particularly during the first Rajapaksa regime. So the backlash against the Muslims after that was once again part of a continuum. The abuse of the Prevention of Terrorism Act after the Easter attacks, once again, not something new, part of a continuum. So, and you know, using the public security ordinance to bring out the military to maintain law and order, once again, part of a continuum. So I think in a sense, yes, it was a turning point where politics was concerned. But if you're looking at rule of law, about erosion of a democratic space, about abuse of the law or using the law as a tool to violate human rights, uh, it was just another means for the continuum to you know, continue. Let's maybe take a moment, Bhavani, to dive a little bit deeper into the current government and ruling coalitions. Again, I think people will know that there are two brothers. Um, one of them is the president. The other one is the prime minister. Um, it used to be the other way around. They've been in power for, for a while now. But could you give us briefly sort of an overview of the current regime in place? Uh, who are the key figures? Who are the coalitions? Who's in the opposition? You know, how does, how does Sri Lankan politics at the highest level present itself right now? Nico, how much time do I have? Because this is this is a complicated question. But not, I'll, not, I'll, not as I'll, much as you need. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll, I'll keep it short. But there's more than two brothers. I think that's something we need to be very clear is the, the Rajapaksa family is very much in control. The president, Gotabe Rajapaksa, his elder brother, Mahinda Rajapaksa, who was formerly the president, is now the prime minister. Um, you have another brother who is also in government, who was formerly a speaker, and then the youngest brother who is not in uh, an official cabinet post, but very, very influential in government. So four brothers. Um, and then you have 
the children of some of these brothers also in particular positions. You have one in cabinet, another one who's a member of parliament, and, and then another who's a state minister. It's massive. The Rajapaksa family is very much a force to be reckoned with and has been a force to be reckoned with for a while. What we need to kind of keep in mind at this moment is the fact that the present government came on a very strong Sinhala Buddhist, that's a majority community vote base. And they speak to that. So there is no nationalism, the majority in politics come from that base. And there is unfortunately this rhetoric that is very much there that says it, it's a singular Buddhist country. Unfortunately, it speaks really against the diversity that many of us cherish in this country. Um, but we, one aspect that one needs to be really mindful is that there is an unprecedented number of former and serving military officials in this government. And many who are close to the president, he has a military background, so that militarization and military as dimension of government uh, from key positions in secretaries and other institutions to the pandemic response um, has been very much influenced and dominated by the military. The other one aspect I think we need to be very mindful when we are talking about politics in Sri Lanka at this moment is in August 2020, we had the elections, this government received a significant majority, and they're using that to push policy, saying the mandate has been given by the people, and this is the, the policy dimensions we're going on. And in that, within a couple of weeks, they pushed through, passed a constitutional amendment that centralized further powers with the executive presidency, um, and we now have a, a, a very, very powerful president who can really override even parliament. And what we saw in 2020 was five months where we didn't even have parliament sitting. And the excuse was there's a pandemic. Um, and they ignored the fact the constitution provides for emergency um, situations where parliament can be sitting. So... We now have under the Rajapaksa family a very strong executive presidency and a presidency that's very much supported by former and serving military officials in a nutshell. Thank you very much. I think that was already a great overview. Now, Ambika, something that I've been wondering about is that to me and, and probably to many other people who are not following Sri Lankan politics very closely, the first time kind of the name Rajapaksa became visible was after the end of the of the civil war when um Kadabaya, i think it was it was it was the defense minister and it was also in, in part credited for ending the war and it seems to me that you know this time this, these 11 years are a fairly short time to build this sort of uh build this level of control this amount of control in in concert in one single family so uh, can you talk a bit if that's possible about you know, where did the Rajapakas come from before? You know, what sort of influence did they have pre-2009 and, and which factors, in your view, contributed to them being able to concentrate that much power and influence within that relatively short amount of time? 
I mean, they've always been a, a, a political family. And Mahindra Rajapaksa, as you know, was part of also the, the previous government, Chandrika Bandar Naika Kumaratunga's government, and he was Minister of Fisheries. And uh, so then he stood for elections and came to power. And I think they have been very smart because what they have done is two things. I think one is tapped into the existing culture of Sri Lanka, which is, uh, you know, very patronage driven and which is rather feudal. So they've been able to tap into that and also in a way positive themselves as, you know, people who are giving voice to the rural masses. So they portray the previous governments as, for instance, you know, uh, the Ranil Vikramasinghe's government as elitist. They're all Colombo-based, etc. So in a way, there's also this class dimension that comes to that. Uh, plus, they've also consolidated in terms of their relationship with the military, I think. So they've, they've been very uh, strategic in that. And it's always family-based because there's an interesting passage from Gotabe Rajabaksa's biography where he says that after Mahinda was elected as president, he walked out of the room, he saw Gotabaya there and he said, immediately patted him on the shoulder and said, you're going to be my defense secretary. So that is how things work here. A lot of it is based, mm. it's not a rule-based order, although it's supposed to be. It is more relationship-based and patronage-driven and rather feudal. So I think they have been able to tap into the discontent also of the, the rural Sinhalese who felt in a way disenfranchised probably, you know, felt out of it. So that is, I think, how they built it. And also during the the, uh, the time they were out of power, those five years, they were a formidable, in a way, opposition. And they ensured that they built or they continued to build their support base in the ground from local temples. And they use media, particularly social media, very effectively. Mm-hmm. So I think that's how they are who they are now. I did want to address one last issue maybe in terms of the political and, and foreign policy dimensions, especially. I know that the, the, the first retropoxic government especially sought to deepen the relationship with China quite a lot, also sort of, you know, defining itself a little bit in, in contradiction to India. Ambika, is the pendulum swinging back a little bit again? Does the government try to sort of balance its relationship between those two Asian superpowers? Or would you still say that there is a, a, a stronger connection between Sri Lanka and China than there used to be? Uh, yes, I, it doesn't seem like China, uh, sorry, Sri Lanka is balancing its relationship at all, going by what is happening here. And like, for instance, we have uh, not just the fact that we did a you know 1.5 billion currency swap, but also because Sri Lanka did not wish to go to the International Monetary Fund. And I think that also emboldens Sri Lanka in, in that it thinks it does not have to go to the usual suspects, as it were, and therefore it can not be or it won't be held accountable. The other thing is, for instance, simple things like we have a lot of, you know, even propaganda videos made by China in Sinhalese, the local language, uh, in support of the port city, against which there were also cases filed in the Supreme Court challenging the validity of the proposed draft legislation. And we had the Chinese defense, sorry, was it the, yeah, the defense minister visiting and the foreign minister is going to be visiting. So therefore, I think that it, we are not doing a good job of balancing our relationship uh, at all. Ambika mentioned the 1.5 currency swap with China. The Central Bank of Sri Lanka and the People's Bank of China entered into a bilateral currency swap agreement in March 2021. 
with the intention to promote bilateral trade and direct investment for the economic development of the two countries. Sri Lanka previously sought a fresh currency swap deal with India, but that didn't work out as India insisted on Sri Lanka having a staff-level agreement for an IMF program, which Sri Lanka didn't want to agree with, as it seems. Later in May 2021, the Parliament of Sri Lanka approved the Port City Commission Bill to establish the Colombo Port City Special Economic Zone and Economic Commission, which forms part of the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. Both Ambika and Pavani pointed out that Sri Lanka is not balancing its foreign relations well. It is getting closer to China, which has caused tensions with its big brother, India. And with that, let's end on a lighter note, moving on to our speakers' favourite spots and food in Sri Lanka, so that we can experience them if you have a chance to travel there in the future. Pavani recommends... I'm a beach person, so I, I would say if you can, try to go to the beach. But that's it. The hill country, the rest of the country is beautiful. So, you know, don't choose one place. Try to be here for a few weeks and travel as much as you can. When you can, I, I think that's going to be the challenge. And there's just just stunning locations. In terms of the food as well, there's just too many. But I would say the rice and curry is something just you must have. And so many other things. But anyone interested to come, you know, let me know. I'm a foodie at heart, so I'm happy to give further tips. And Ambika? Well, I would agree with Bhavani. I mean, it's not just one place. So I think they should, uh, you know, travel as much as possible because it's a very beautiful country and different parts have different, uh, I think, different kinds of beauty. Where food is concerned, I would say a hopper's. It's made out of rice flour and it has a crispy outer kind of shell and a milky inner shell if it's milk hoppers. And you can put jaggery in the middle on, on, on top of the milky middle. Hoppers are really great and I love them. And the other thing that I love is vatlapam, which is a, a dessert that is made by the Muslim community. Both Ambika Sakonanathan and Pavani Fonseca have written numerous articles If you want to dig deeper into some of the human rights issues they touch upon, I recommend you have a look at the recent report by the Center for Policy Alternatives, researched by Pavani and her colleague. You'll find the link to this and other articles in the show notes. So, thank you very much for listening. you find all the details on the recommendations by our speakers and the articles in the show notes. If you liked this episode, please make sure to subscribe and do leave us a rating or review on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. The next edition is about Uzbekistan, the landlocked and most populous country of Central Asia. I'm Dani Staubli. See you soon. Follow Asia Society Switzerland on social media and visit our website for more information on upcoming events. 